All right, we are starting part two this morning of The Glorious Church, which is a survey in the book of Ephesians. And Paul was writing to the believers on the Macedonian Peninsula, um, particularly the gatherings in the city of Ephesus, which was one of the wealthiest, most metropolitan cities of the known world at the time. And uh, he had to come up with something attractive enough to get them to leave behind their secular opulence and join the followers of Christ who had actually some things going against them in the Roman Empire. Uh, They were trying to trade a life of opulence, maybe for a life that where they would face persecution, where uh, there would be great difficulty, they would be at odds with the governing authorities uh, in the known world. And so uh, Paul really went to great extent to demonstrate and to show just how amazing the deal that was before them. The deal meaning to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior and to be found in in him. That phrase, in him, is what we looked at last week. And in him, uh, in chapter one, uh, Paul begins by addressing the blessings, the, the great spiritual blessings that we have in him, in Jesus Christ. And the first, that God the Father has chosen us, um, has chosen you and chosen me in Christ, chosen us before the foundations of the universe, and that that really addresses our scarcity of belonging. Um, We all have scarcity. We all experience scarcity in our soul. That's sometimes why we do the things that we do, why we chase the things that we chase, especially those things that aren't good for us. It's because we feel and we sense a scarcity in our soul. And so Paul is addressing those things. How many of you know that no matter how much money you have, you can still be completely bankrupt inside? right? And so he's addressing and he's saying, because God the Father has chosen you, that that addresses our scarcity of belonging. He says that uh, Jesus has redeemed us, that you are redeemed, and that God the Son has purchased your contract, not just to give you another master and put you to work, but he has purchased your contract to set you free, from the masters that you had in the world, and that that really addresses our scarcity of worth. Many of us are still trying to measure up to somebody, measure up to something, measure up to someone's expectations. But when you get a revelation, when you see that, that Jesus, what he has paid and what he has paid for and what the aspects of his redemption are, when, when you get a revelation of that, it addresses our scarcity of worth. And last, that he didn't just do something historically and give us something to look forward to way afar off after we die, but that we've been sealed, that God the Holy Spirit has sealed us, has been, has been given as a guarantee that we might walk in our inheritance even in the present day, that God the Spirit guarantees your inheritance and my inheritance in Christ even in the present day. He's here to make sure we get all the way home in one piece, thank the Lord. And that addresses our scarcity of strength, our scarcity of strength. We often feel like we don't have enough power, like we lack strength, like we, we, don't, we don't have what it takes. But in Jesus Christ, in him, he has addressed our scarcity of belonging, our scarcity of worth, and our scarcity of strength. And, but all that doesn't really mean anything if it stays on the shelf. You know, we have tons of books in that library over there. I have tons of books at home. You might listen to a bunch of podcasts and everything, but all that stuff doesn't 
amount to anything if it doesn't get in here. It's not enough to know it here. It has to actually get in here. And Paul, right after the passage we looked at last week, um, in verses 15 to 23, what he starts to address is he is earnestly praying that God would essentially give us, he would bring enlightenment to the eyes of our heart, that all the things that he talked about and the blessings of being in him, that in him would get in you, that in him would get in us. And so that's where we're going to start. We're going to read the passage, and then we're going to break it down a little bit. Here is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Paul says, Therefore, therefore, since you were chosen, you were redeemed and you were sealed. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you spiritual wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your heart being enlightened. Say that with me. The eyes of your heart being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the reading of God's word. So this passage really can be divided into two sections. The first is Paul saying that he is praying for us that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened or opened. And then the second part is what things our eyes, the eyes of our heart, need to be opened and enlightened to. So we're going to take a look at first. The Bible essentially divides a person into two parts, the inner person and the outer person. The inner person is most often referred to as the heart or the spirit, the soul, mind, will, emotions. It's the you that's the real you that you will still have all that you are in eternity even after your earth suit fails and you're going to get a new earth suit. You're going to get a new outer person. The outer person describes the body, our flesh. Sometimes the Bible refers to it as our members, our carnal man, our natural man, or your earth suit. And one of the, the preeminence of the inner person is a common theme throughout the scriptures from beginning to end. Jesus actually illustrates this most profoundly in Luke chapter 6. He illustrates it many times, but this one is, I think, um, one of the most impactful uh, for our time today. And he said, he's talking to his disciples, and he says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, 
nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Now, there is some profound truth in that illustration. Let me illustrate it further from my own life. So when I was in uh, high school, this was before BC, this was before Christ. As a senior in high school, uh, there was a lovely young lady that I was dating, uh, and uh, but I often went to parties uh, with my other friends, and she wasn't always there. And at one particular party, I had way too much to drink, and I started confessing my undying love for another young lady who had been a friend of mine for a long time, but I hadn't really told anybody about it. And so that got me into a whole lot of trouble um, because it took, I don't know, maybe eight minutes in the land of pagers um, for my girlfriend at the time to find out. And so the next day, you know, as I'm groveling and trying to make my amends, you know, I say something interesting that you might have found yourself saying something similar. I'm sorry. I, I don't know what got into me. I said some things I didn't mean. I had too much to drink, you know, that type of thing. Well, if what Jesus said was true, there was actually nothing that came out of my mouth that night that wasn't in my heart. What I should have said to her is, please forgive me, I actually said what I meant. And then, of course, that would have been the, the happy ending to that relationship because she really didn't belong with me anyway, right? Uh, but, you know, there's nothing that comes out of the mouth of a drunk that wasn't in his heart in the first place. And Jesus makes that not just about the evil things or the bad things, but the relationship that all of the stuff we see out here that comes out of our mouth and the behaviors we have and the things that we chase are not actually, they're not being done to us from the outside. They're actually coming out of us from the inside. And that's why Paul is saying how important it is that the eyes of our heart are opened and enlightened to the truths of the kingdom and the power of the gospel because that's what actually drives our life, what's in here. Your heart is the control center for your life. The fruit that we bear, our character, our words, our fulfillment, our relationships, even our awareness and experience of God's power all originate in here first, not out here or out there. And I would say for me, probably one of the hardest truths of the Christian life is that my biggest problems are inside me, not outside me. Jesus also said in Mark chapter 7, he said, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Right? So that means that I will only begin to see real lasting take change take place in my life when I quit looking outside of myself and I begin to look inside of myself, and that is very hard to do. 
because we can have such an accurate view of the mistakes of others, the needs of others, the wrongs of others, the immaturity of others, and yet we can still be so blind to what's going on inside our own heart. Paul had heard that many in Ephesus had been converted, right? They had faith in Jesus Christ and had since laid down secular and religious divisions in exchange for tender-hearted devotion to believers everywhere, love of the saints, love for saints everywhere. And then he goes on to relay his continuous and earnest prayer for the eyes of their heart to be enlightened. So to summarize, what Paul is saying is, ladies and gentlemen, you're off to a great start. But this is only the start. There is so much more. And the avenue by which God will bring all the so much more into your life today is through the avenue of your heart. You have to know, know, like gnosko, that is the Greek word for, for marriage intimacy. You have to know in here, in here, before anything happens out there. So what does Paul want us to know? In here. Yeah, I put it in color coordination. I skipped. There we go. Okay. The first thing he wants us to know in verse 18a is the hope of his calling. The hope of his calling. And what does it mean to be called? Well, actually, the word church is a combination of two Greek words that mean called out called out. And Paul wants us to understand the hope that is ours because of this calling. The hope that we have in our calling as the church is not a hope so, like my son is hoping that he'll, his, his AirPods will show up on Monday from Amazon, um, because there are still many things, right, that could happen that would prevent those AirPods from actually showing up to his house, to our house. Um, this is a living hope, a hope that God himself has put his name and his reputation on. And we have it today. Now, what is our hope? The believer's hope is the return of Jesus Christ for his church. Like in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says that we, our hope is that Jesus is coming back for us. And if it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. Right, That hope uh, that belongs to our calling, that hope should be a dynamic force in our lives, changing the way we live today. Now, does the hope that you have, does the hope that we have actually change the way we live? Let me illustrate. Again, back to when I was in high school, this was again before Christ, uh, a new family moved in next door. And uh, the 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 dad was a new professor at Cal Poly, and uh, he started asking me to house sit when their family went back to the East Coast to visit um, where their family had moved from. And on one particular occasion, I, uh, you know, they had a nicer house in terms of stuff. They had a pool. They had, I think they had a CD player. Um, we still had tape decks, right? Um, uh, they had all kinds of fun stuff um, that, that, that maybe that, that we didn't have. And so I would invite my friends over um, to meet me there when I went over to house sit or take care of things, and we enjoyed the place probably a little too much. Well, on one particular occasion, I, we were expecting them home on Sunday afternoon, and they came home on Friday afternoon. 
And so when I got home and I drove up in the a little car after school on Friday and I saw their van parked out in front, I had the, <gasps> oh no. Uh, and that was the last time I was asked to house sit. <laughs> right, they... Uh, they, they, the, the living room was a mess. I think we had actually taken, we had stolen some things from them uh, that we were planning on putting back maybe after we had enjoyed them. And of course, they came home and they found everything a mess. And so it really, that was, that was not a good moment for, for, for Jeff Bauer. I was not living with the understanding that they, could, would, they were actually coming back. Right? When we know the hope of his calling in here, then we're going to live in such a way that we keep our house in order. Because we really don't know when he's coming back. He could come back in the next moment. The hope of his calling, and when that, that is good news. That hope should change the way we live today that he's coming back for us, that he's coming back for you, and he's coming back for me. When we know the hope of his calling in here, our house will stay in order. The next thing in verse 18 is he wants us to know the riches of his inheritance. Now, this might throw your mind for a loop, because earlier in the verse, last week, we talked about our inheritance in Christ. But that's not what this verse is saying. This verse is saying that it does not refer to our inheritance in Christ, but his inheritance in us. Why is that important for us to know, the eyes of our heart, to be enlightened, that he looks on us as his inheritance? Does God really look on us as part of his great wealth and treasure? Yes. Just as a person's wealth brings glory to his name, so God will get glory from the church because of what he has invested in us. When Jesus Christ returns, we will be to the praise of his glory. Three times Paul said that in the scripture last week. How does this revelation change my here and now? How does knowing that God's inheritance or the, the inheritance of Jesus Christ, the God's inheritance in us, how does that change the way I live? How does that change my today? How does that change the way I feel, the way I act, the way I think, the way I talk? How does this revelation change my here and now? Well, I would say that one major reason is that God deals with us on the basis of our future, not our past. God deals with us based on our future, that we are already in Christ to the praise of his glory. He deals with us according to our future state, not our past state. You can see the foreshadows of this in the Old Testament, like um, the, the, the young ruler, the, the young guy Gideon, who uh, was supposed to go out. He had been cowardly as a young person, and all of a sudden God, uh, through the prophet, calls him a mighty man of valor in Judges 6.12. That was not based on anything he had yet done. 
It was not based on his experience. It was not based on his track record. It was not based on his resume. It was based on his future state, which God already saw and dealt with him according to his future, not his past. And he became a mighty man of valor. How about Simon? Simon, one of the disciples that Jesus called. Simon initially was referred to as Andrew's brother. That was his claim to fame. Like, I remember in 1994 when I showed up to San Luis High School for the first time, uh, and I walked in. The first period class was uh, biology with Mr. Lopez. He looks down and he says, where's Bauer? And I raised my hand. Are you Mark and Michelle Bauer's brother? Yes. Oh, well, then we'll expect A pluses from you. (laughs) Thanks, Mark. I was just Mark's brother. Right? How many of you know what it's like to just be somebody's brother, somebody's spouse, somebody else? You're known by your association to somebody else, not in your own right. Right? Does that sometimes cause us to chase things that we shouldn't chase and express ourselves and act out in ways that we would not otherwise act out because we're really just known because we're attached to somebody else? Well, Simon... Jesus actually addressed that with him, and he said, you're not going to be, you have been Simon, Andrew's brother, but you're going to be Cephas, or Peter, the rock. Now, and does, does Peter end up becoming the rock that the, the confession of Jesus as Lord, the, on that confession that, that uh, God will um, build his church, and that Peter became the rock, even an apostle in the early church and the spread of the gospel, um, he became what Jesus just Jesus dealt with him not according to his past just being known as Andrew's brother but according to his future others Jesus addressed and dealt with Saul as if he were already Paul God dealt with Jacob wrestled with Jacob as if he were already Israel and Abram as the father of nations before he had children He dealt with him as Abraham, right? That's why, really, we are commanded not to judge others. It's not that we can't exercise good judgment, but we're not to judge others based on their track record because judging means to seal the future of someone else based on their past. Oftentimes, that's all we have to look at. That's why God sent us the Holy Spirit to bring us words of wisdom and words of knowledge and prophetic understanding so that we also, in his manner, deal with people according to their future, not just their past. That is an extremely powerful truth. There were people, before I became a follower of Christ, that talked to me. There were three different people that that told me that I was going to be a pastor someday. Now, how did they know that? I'm not sure that they knew it. They just certainly didn't know it by my track record. They knew it because they got a glimpse. They saw in they saw maybe they saw through the dark the glass darkly or dimly, but they caught a glimpse of my future. And God was already dealing with me according to my future, not my past. 
When we know the me that God sees in here, excuse me, when we know the me that God sees in here, we will gladly give our surrendered cooperation. When we see the me that God sees in here, when we know that me, then we're going to give our surrendered cooperation to his working, his purpose, his plans, his admonition, his correction, because we know that he's bringing us into a good future, into a, into a hope that is assured, because he's dealing with us according to our future self in Christ, in the place, in the, in the realm, operating and walking and living and moving and, and being in what he has called us to do, in, in the things he has predestined for us, the works and the purposes that he has ordained for us even before the foundation of the universe. When we, when we are so convinced, the eyes of our heart are enlightened to that, we will stop dealing with ourselves according to our past. Because our past can be such a difficult anchor to break free from. That will change the way you live. It will change the way I live. The last thing he wanted us to be, our, the eyes of our heart to be enlightened to was the greatness of his power. Now he spends two little phrases on the first two, and then he spends four verses on this. And I just want to read them again just so you, to refresh your memory here. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So tremendous is this truth that Paul enlisted many different words from the Greek vocabulary to get his point across. He used dunamis, which is the word for explosive power, where we would get the word dynamite. He uses the word energia, which is like kinetic energy or energy in action. Like it's not just that you ha there's potential to do something. It's that, that that energy is actually at work in us. Um, he uses kratos, which is the word for mighty, and iskis, which is the word for strength. He longs, Paul is earnestly longing for us to know in here what is the surpassing magnitude of God's explosive power in action, in and through us who believe, according to the observable operation of that might of his strength. In the Old Testament, before Jesus, there's lots in the Old Testament about the power of God. But the reference point for God's power was creation or exodus of Israel from Egypt. The psalmist talks about creation, you know, uh, and, but that's the reference point, that we can see the majesty, the power of God in creation, that we can see the power of God in the way he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt uh, and delivered them from Egypt, the miraculous. And those, are, those were miraculous and those were signs of power. But in the New Testament, Paul is changing that reference point. The reference point for God's power is the resurrection. The reference point for God's power for us is not just that he made the world. That was amazing. 
the universe, that he set things in motion according to harmonious physical laws where everything works. That is amazing. Not that he could deliver one nation out of the hand of another nation and miraculously turn rivers into blood and bring insects and have control over the physical creation that he made. That is amazing. The reference point for his awesome power is that death is defeated, that death does not have the final say, that death has been robbed of its strength, that death is defeated. And when death was defeated, he goes into what that means, that the dominion of death's kingdom was permanently subjected underfoot to Jesus Christ. That verse 22 says, and he, God the Father, put all things, that means all, All things, all things, all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him, Jesus, to be head over all things to the church. That's you and me. We're in his body with everything under our feet. That's stunning. That does not relate to much of how most Christians live. That's why Paul was, I am begging you, please let your heart, the eyes of your heart be enlightened to this truth. This is why Jesus could say in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. He could say that because he was not under the dominion of death's kingdom. And now neither are we. All evil powers, all principalities, all powers, all mights, all dominions, all names that are named in this age, not just in the age to come, not just in the spirit, all powers, all dominions, all names of every age are under our feet because we are in the body of Christ, the church, and on the increase of his government, there will be no end. Sin can't legally enslave you. That's why the eyes of our heart need to be enlightened. Demons or demonic powers can't legally oppress you. They're under the feet of Jesus Christ. And we're in his body. We're in him. Often we narrowly define God's power as the force that keeps us alive here on this earth. And that is true. There is plenty of power available for that. There is nothing in this physical world that can take you out legally ahead of your time. I know that might mess with your theology a little bit, and I don't walk in the fullness of that revelation. I don't. The eyes of my heart have not been completely enlightened by it, but I earnestly desire the eyes of my heart to be enlightened to the, the, the truth of his power, the exceeding greatness of his power, and that if I know it and know it, no, 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 in here, that my body will begin to take cues from what I know in here, not just what's going on out there. How do I know that to be true? Well, in the four Gospels, we see God's power at work in the ministry of Jesus Christ. He dealt with demonic powers, sin, and every piece of bodily brokenness. 
And he took and walked in gentle and positive authority, effortless authority over it all. And then in the book of Acts, we saw that same power at work in ordinary women and men, members of the body of Christ, doing the same thing. What a transformation. I want that for me. I want that for us. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ was known in here and therefore experienced out there. I want to end with this illustration. The greatest power shortage today is not in our spiritual bank account. The greatest power shortage today is not in our spiritual bank account. The greatest power shortage is in the personal checkbook ledger we carry around in our heart. What we say we have in our checkbook ledger is not the same as what God says we have in the bank. I want my ledger to read accurately. How about you? When we know the power available in here, we will boldly exercise our faith. Come on and stand with me. Prayer team, if you can come forward. If you need to know some stuff in here and really know it, we want to pray with you. We want to we want to declare some things and contend for those things and be in agreement with Paul's prayer that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to the glorious power, the glorious, the glory of being in him. God, we thank you for this day. We bless your name today. Thank you, God, that we have been born again into your family that we are truly members, we're hidden, we're part, we're connected, we're part of the body of Christ. Life flows to us. Thank you, Lord, for being the head of our body, that you, with perfect spiritual insight and clarity and power and authority, you keep us safe in yourself and that you are leading us truly and faithfully with your goodness. God, I pray for everyone gathered here that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, truly would be enlightened to the hope of your calling, to the riches of your inheritance in us and the exceeding greatness of your mighty power. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.